The podcast you're about to listen to may contain random lines from musical theater, terrible attempts at original accents, and a sincere discussion about mental health. You have been warned. Are you ready to start singing with your feet? Formidable! Allez, c'est parti! Non, nous ne sommes pas fous, nous ne sommes pas ivres, nous sommes juste dans la joie. Une joie profonde, nos cœurs élinantes. Cette joie, elle vient du ciel, non, nous ne sommes pas fous. Welcome to Sing With Your Feet, the podcast in which we imagine the kind of person we want to be when we grow up. Even though, by all standards, we already are grown up. The podcast in which all the overlapping circles that make up the blueprint for our lives bring some of our private struggles into sharper focus. The podcast in which we learn to have really hard, really important conversations that, while uncomfortable, are guaranteed to help us grow. My name is Lily Fields, and I'm going to be your fairy godmother for the next half hour or so. Nah, 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 Lily Fields. Oh, that's you. Look at you in your hoop skirt and that gigantic flowery hat. Aren't you cute? I take umbrage at the insinuation that I am not grown up. I am very much an adult, Lily Fields. Oh, now, please, please, please do not take what I said about needing to grow up personally. It's just that this week's topic is something I think a lot of us struggle with in varying degrees. That is, gravitas. We'll get more into what that actually means, but if you, my country bumpkin, have perfect posture, a commanding presence, and know when to keep your mouth shut, then you don't have a problem with gravitas. But some of us do. Ah, Lily, now you're talking about it, those Venn diagrams again? When will you let up? Listen, I can't let up. I just can't. You see, it took me a really, really long time to understand that I actually had anything to offer in this life, especially since what I have to offer is not particularly conventional. What I discovered is that the things we love, our passions and our quirks, are what make us unique in this life, and that our lives can be more beautiful more exciting, more delight-filled if we pursue the things that we love. Me? I like Venn diagrams. No, wait. I love Venn diagrams. My five-year-old might hear me say that and say, well then, why don't you marry this Mr. Venn diagram? To which I would say, if I could, my dear, I probably would. You see, I believe that there is a unique, gorgeous, exciting plan for each of our lives. It exists. It's it's just that we have to go on a kind of internal scavenger hunt in order to find it. It exists in the way that, with a heavy dose of lucidity, we want our lives to look in each individual area of our life. The way those areas, which I like to imagine as circles, overlap for us, is as unique as each one of us is. And it forms this intoxicatingly beautiful blueprint for our lives. Well, don't expect a gift for me for your marriage to Mr. Diagram, Lily Fields. Oh, don't worry. That won't be happening anytime soon. As a matter of fact, today I am going to tell you the story of how I met Charming Fields, my French philosopher husband, and why it is that I married him. As if you needed anything more than Charming, French, and Philosopher as reasons why I would have married someone. But in any case, Gravitas is 
the big reason why I decided to marry him. It was his understanding of my need for gravitas that made me feel seen and loved. So if you're a little bit curious about our story, stay tuned. You're going to be hearing a lot more about that. The ideal life exercise is a habit of answering four questions about one different theme, just one circle of our Venn diagram each day. The exercise takes as little or as much time as you want to give it, but I generally spend five to 15 minutes each morning thinking about it. There are 19 circles in our ideal life diagram, which we cover over the course of three weeks, with one theme being repeated each one of those weeks. Just as a review, here are the four questions we ask for each one of the themes. What is working? What isn't working? What do I need to think about? And what do I need to do? This repetition over time, it allows us to see how we've been making progress and thereby to celebrate, which as you may have forgotten, is one of my favorite things to do, celebrate progress. Or if we've stagnated, it gives us a a safe, self-contained space to think about why we've stagnated before our stagnation turns into backsliding. And if things are going particularly badly, it's also an outlet to address these issues with ourselves, to articulate the problems and start looking for solutions. When I was younger, I would have been hard pressed to define what it meant to grow up, but it was the thing I desired the most. I came to believe that growing up meant having experiences, and experiences would somehow change the essence of who I was. Having experiences, as it turned out, was not enough to change the essence of who I was around other people. I was too energetic, too enthusiastic, too optimistic to the point of being annoying. I couldn't have pinpointed this as a young person, but now I know. All that too muchness was a mask to cover up severe social anxiety a crushing need to be liked, and a debilitating self-loathing. Years passed. Even as I had an interesting life, adding experience to experience, I still talked too fast. I couldn't help but run when a normal person would walk, much to the dismay of my colleagues, and I still couldn't control my impulses, especially at the extremes of my creative process. So what is gravitas? I discovered this word about 10 years ago, and I realized that it addressed my youthful desire to finally grow up. Gravitas is a mishmash of both verbal and nonverbal communication. It is seriousness, dignity, composure, credibility, authenticity, all wrapped up in a self-aware, confident package. It is that element which, as a young person, I knew instinctively was missing. Gravitas was what I imagined when I said that I wanted to grow up. Here are a few of my In My Ideal Life, I Am a Person Who statements as they relate to gravitas. In my ideal life, I am a person who speaks her mind with concision, is calm, slow, strong, and composed, knows what she wants, and is patient while she works to get it manages her anxiety, has remarkable self-discipline, behaves the same in private as in public, has well-placed self-assurance and is self-aware, stays quiet when she has nothing to add, doesn't listen to gossip, is classy, lives in harmony with the ups and downs of her creative process. 
so it's time that I tell you how I met my indulgent husband because it's something that he said some 25 years ago that brought to light just how much of a jumble my little silver threads were when it comes to gravitas. As I headed toward the end of my high school years in 1996, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I only knew that I wanted to finally grow up. I had a lovely upbringing on the shores of Lake Erie in a smallish suburb of Cleveland. I was surrounded by wonderful people, young people and grown-ups alike. I get it that the fact that my only sure goal in life was to finally grow up comes from a place of incredible privilege. I had absolutely no idea what it would mean to grow up, but I suspected that it would mean that I would be less sensitive or less emotional or less caught up in the millions of ideas that constantly swirled in my head. I probably thought that it would mean that I would learn to stop interrupting people when they talked and that I would be able to feel like the success of every conversation did not solely rest on my shoulders. I was insufferable. It wasn't a word that anyone ever called me. It was one that I picked up from a Jane Austen novel and I actually had to look up. I felt like in order to grow up, I needed to get away as far away from home as I possibly could. So... I went to France. <laughs> for some reason, I was always good at French. The only possible explanation for that is that I have an older sister, my sister Poppy, who started studying French when she was in sixth grade, as one does in a charming lakeside village in northeastern Ohio. Hearing her spout off the little French phases here and there was irresistible to eight-year-old me. Seeing as how I wanted to do everything my older sister ever did, when she went to France on a summer trip, well, I wanted to go to France too. <laughs> so the minute I had the opportunity, I went and studied for France for a full year at a university just after high school. My mother still asks herself how she could have let her 18-year-old daughter cross the Atlantic by herself, considering that my mother didn't even have a passport, but she did. And that is how I ended up in Montpellier, France, at a bus stop in January of 1997, 20 years to the day before my youngest child would be born. There is so much to tell about the time between September of 96 and January of 97, but I really need to streamline my thoughts, so bear with me while I swallow back a mess of circuitousness and anecdotes about discovering minimalism, my obsession with an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical which referenced the Montpellier train station, and thereby going out of my way to use the bus stop there, and having peacocks for neighbors. Up until that night in January of 1997, I had never attended a movie alone. On that particular night, I went to see the truth about cats and dogs. I felt so urban, so grown up, and I felt beautiful that night too. I was wearing a red check skirt and a turtleneck sweater, and by the time the movie let out, the buses had switched over to their night schedule, which meant that all the sprawling university housing complexes were served by one bus, the Rabelais. It was this nighttime bus line which took three times as long to get anywhere because it stopped everywhere. I waited alone at the bus stop in front of the train station for a while, and then a young man with longish dark hair and big heavy glasses arrived and began studying the timetables. Puis je vous ai déjà trouvé quelque chose? I asked. May I help you find something? Because long before I worked at Walt Disney World, I was already practicing being in guest relations. <laughs> He was looking to get back to one of the university housing complexes, one that was called Triolet. 
I lived at Verbois, and I knew that Triolet was well before the Verbois stop, and I, ever the tour guide and secret bus stop stalker, told him that if he sat near me, I would tell him where he could get off the bus. This young man, as I said, he had longish dark hair, which he regularly blew out of his eyes with an exasperated sigh. It was a strange tick, so I kept my distance. When the Rabelais finally rolled up in front of the train station, the bus was full but for one seat. So I ended up sitting next to this young man with a sigh and the glasses. And we chatted. Although I found him strange, with that tick and the glasses and the fact that he had to take off his coat in the bus because he apparently would get motion sickness if he got too warm, he said one thing that intrigued me. He was a philosophy student, and he would soon become a philosophy teacher. This naturally changed my attitude. You see, I had ideas, and I wanted to, nay, I was compelled to share them with anyone who would listen. The bus trip proved shorter than I expected. I guess because I finally found someone who would listen to me spout my ideas. <laughs> we vaguely shared building numbers because there were no cell phones back then, and none of us had phones in our rooms. We had building numbers. A few weeks later, I was having lunch at Triolet with a friend, and since I was at Triolet, I decided to stop by the building where the philosopher lived. He happened to be home, and he happened to have gotten a haircut. Yeah, he had lovely brown eyes, and when he spoke French, I understood him better than anybody else. And thus began a friendship of ideas, a philosophizing and arguing and logic and playing mastermind late into the night. Now, before you start thinking, how romantic, let me just stop you right there. <laughs> there was nothing romantic about this friendship. We were both poor students who liked to do free things. There was a free zoo just outside my window, thus the peacocks, and there were free concerts offered by the university music department. We were cheap. Very, very cheap. The thing we liked to do the most, though, was talk. I trademarked a phrase at that time. J'ai une théorie sur ça, which means I have a theory about that. This phrase has stayed with us for 25 years. I still have a theory on everything. Thus why I am exhausting on a good day and mind-bendingly infuriating on a bad day. Oh, he had theories on everything too, but he was a much better listener than I will ever be. He listened so very well, and I talked so, so very much that he was able to put into words the gigantic jumble of silvery threads that would take at least the next 25 years and counting to sort out. His theory about my silvery jumble was this. Why would you want to grow up when being childlike is what makes you so much fun to be around? I liked his theory, and so I married him. There is no easy roadmap to Gravitas. It's something that is incredibly hard to define in a global way. It's not a function of age. I mean, Malala has it, Greta Thunberg has it, Margaret Thatcher had it, Kamala Harris has it, Queen Elizabeth uh, definitely has it. It's a commanding presence and seriousness. Gravitas has a look and Gravitas has a sound. I've come to believe that defining gravitas for my own non-stateswoman or global activist lifestyle is often defined by contrasting it with what gravitas is not. When I run on at the mouth, for example, or attempt to make jokes that aren't very funny, I'm not expressing gravitas. Therefore, to find gravitas in this, I would need to learn how to hold my tongue or to stop trying to be funny when I am clearly not. Or, for example, one day, my eldest son got hold of my telephone and started taking pictures. 
At the end of the day, when I was flipping through the pictures, I caught a glimpse of a woman with horrible posture. It so happened that that woman was me. So many, many years ago, I took an adult ballet class with an instructor who was probably in her 60s, although she might have been in her 70s. Her, her skin was thin and wrinkly, and she wasn't particularly thin as ballet dancers go, but she was extraordinary to look at. She still, in my mind, remains the most elegant woman I've ever seen. Why? Because of her posture. Her posture gave her a gravitas that commanded our attention and our respect. Therefore, Gravitas also comports an element of posture. By defining what I thought gravitas looked like, I was able to see what about me I would need to make progress on. This category of gravitas is one that I am still in the process of defining for myself. Every three weeks when I consider it, I'm able to reconnect to my deep-seated desire to finally grow up, and sometimes I'm able to see and celebrate progress towards that end. This being a rather squishy topic, one that each one of us must divine for ourselves, it begs the question, how can I make progress on Gravitas? I think that a big part of making progress is in the observation of women we admire. What is it that we find admirable about them? I will always remember singing at the funeral of a wonderful woman named Suzanne. Suzanne never beat around the bush. She spoke her mind without hesitation. And even though she could be blunt, I never remember being hurt by what she would say, because she never spoke out of turn, and she was always right. That is an example of gravitas to me. Learning how to break that down, learning to be bold and say what I'm thinking, but also to listen to the voice of wisdom in my heart that tells me if it's the right time or place to speak my mind. That would be making progress. Or, for example, this year, one of my New Year's resolutions was to improve my posture. Practicing sitting up straight, walking straight, and everything that that implied. By the way, this has been quite an adventure, and I'll put a link in the show notes to an article that I wrote about it. In any case, developing gravitas is about setting little challenges for ourselves, about continually seeking to grow into the person that we'll be proud of being at the end of our lives. Starting by observing, and then setting tiny, relatively measurable goals is a really great way. A measurable goal might be, for example, this week, at least once, I am going to speak up when I don't agree with something. Something as little as my coffee wasn't hot enough when I received it at the coffee shop, or addressing the festering problem with my neighbor about their trash bags that they leave in the hallway all night. Or, I am going to concentrate on my posture for five minutes each day over the next week. These are tiny, measurable items that we can check off of our to-do list, and thereby, we get to celebrate them. Elle me fait bondir et vibrer, crier. Elle me donne envie de chanter, danser. Elle pousse à agir, donner, partager. Et tout simplement de sourire, aimer. Lyle Kelly. Death Doula and Your Wicked Stepsister is here to expose a critical facet to gravitas, the ability to talk about difficult topics with grace. Give her a listen. Lyla, the floor is yours. Hello there. I'm back, Your Wicked Stepsister, and I have some chores for you today. As you know, Wicked Stepsisters love to assign chores, and I just can't help myself. I have three chores for you. 
Actually, they're not chores, they're conversations. I have three conversation assignments for you. Let me spell them out. Conversation number one. You can get started on this right away because this is a conversation you need to have with yourself. I want you to roll up your sleeves and get down and dirty with death. You may need to grab a notebook because you will likely have some complex, perhaps conflicted feelings, and writing them down can be very revealing. Do you have a notebook? Okay. At the top of the page, write this sentence. Just three words. I will die. Flowers die, animals die, people die, and you too will eventually die. If you give serious thought to these three words, you may find it hard to write that tiny yet enormous sentence, and that's okay. For now, that is a great place to start the conversation. When you're ready, here are a few talking points and prompts to help you continue. What scares you about death? What are some not-so-scary things about death? What is the purpose of a funeral? Would you rather die in an unexpected manner, like an accident, or would you prefer to know that your death is coming? What are your dignity boundaries? If you needed help with toileting, who would you want to help you? Do you want to be cremated, buried at sea, buried in a cemetery, natural burial? What are your preferences? These are some questions to get you thinking about death and dying, clarifying your own feelings and getting you more comfortable with the topic in general. There are endless thoughts you could explore. Just start the conversation and see where it takes you. Make note of the roadblocks you encounter. Don't allow them to derail you just to make a detour and come back to them a bit later. If you need assistance, check out the book, I Will Die, A Creative Journal for Mortals by Jessica Featherly. She offers a wide variety of prompts to make this conversation a bit easier. Here's another idea. If you're more a visual or artistic person, perhaps you could turn these conversations into drawings, little drawings that convey your feelings. Or if you're an action person, get started on some practical items like filling out an advanced directive. When you feel like you've reached a point where you're pretty comfortable with your own feelings and wishes, when you feel like you can have a conversation about death without getting super weird, it's time to turn your attention to the other two conversations. Conversation number two. Which people in your life will you likely be caring for as they die? For whom will you likely be making final arrangements? For a lot of us, this is our parents or our partner, but there may be, may be others whom we will care for. We love these people and we want them to have as good a death as possible. For that to happen, we need to know their feelings and their wishes. We need to have a conversation. But for now, put a pin in conversation two and let's move to number three for a moment. Conversation number three is with the people who will be taking care of you at the end of your life and will be making final arrangements for you. This is conversation two in reverse. Most likely, this is a conversation with your children or again with your partner. You no doubt want a good death for yourself, so you need to make your feelings and preferences known. 
conversations number two and number three may seem daunting, and it's true that there are so many roadblocks we could encounter. Fortunately, you've already done some research and worked on your own feelings in conversation number one. So you are now in a good place to start these conversations. So let's consider a few tips to make these conversations a success. First, don't spring this conversation on people. We're out to a nice dinner, relaxing, and boom, death. No, find a way to give people a heads up that you want to have this conversation. Second, share the reasons why you want to have the conversation. You recognize the value of the discussion, help them to see it as well. Third, it's a conversation, which means it's not a monologue. Be willing to listen and allow them to engage in the conversation, sharing their concerns and questions. This is an opportunity for you to make informed choices together and to share your worries. Last, make room for emotions. Fear, sadness, and tears may be part of the discussion, and that is completely okay. Emotions don't need to be hidden. These are some big chores, really big. Unfortunately, I don't have time here on this podcast to share everything that I'd like to share. I will, however, be posting more on Leaving Well the blog. You can find the link in the show notes. I hope you find it helpful. In the meantime, get started on conversation number one. And as always, remember, talking about death won't kill you. That's right. Thank you so much, Lyla, for getting to the heart of the matter. I'll link to your blog and that journal that you talked about in the show notes. All right, let's take a few minutes and answer those four ideal life questions. Starting with number one, what is working? Were you able to broach an uncomfortable topic? Did you manage to keep your mouth shut instead of saying something that you might regret? Good for you. You are on your way to becoming a true stateswoman. Number two, what isn't working? Whatever it is, whether you put your foot in your mouth in a gloriously splendid spectacular way, or you felt underdressed for an occasion, don't judge yourself. Just write it down. Forgive yourself for failing because it happens. It doesn't make you an imposter. Number three, things to consider. Lyella, she gave you a bunch of homework. I would suggest that you get to work on it. There are a bunch of things to think about in there. Number four, things to do. This is often like a little personal challenge. For example, stop talking so much just for one day or walk more slowly just for one day. Anything that can help me feel just a little bit more grown up is game. In my ideal life, my insides and my outsides match. I want to give you a little bit of a pep talk because I think that the women of my generation, we often feel like imposters. We don't feel like kids anymore. And some of us even have kids, so we know we're not kids anymore. But we don't feel like those women that we saw growing up who had so much poise and elegance and we don't know how to become them when in our hearts, we're still feeling like kids. We are not imposters. We need to start chipping away at what it means to be a grown-up for ourselves. 
We are legitimate. We are credible women. And we need to embrace that. We need to define what that means. And we need to start making progress towards it. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcatchers. And please, if you've heard something that you like here, share it with someone who you think could use a fairy godmother too. A great big thank you to Seven Productions here in Mulhouse, France for the use of the song La Joie as the intro and outro of the show. A special thank you to Claude Ecoué who wrote it and Matt Kugler who sang it. This is your fairy godmother signing off. Don't forget, it is never too late to start singing with your feet.